The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells and here with me as always is New York Magazine sex columnist Maureen O'Connor. Hey Maureen. Hey David. We've got a great show for you this week. First, we're going to remind you about the Sex Lives voicemail box. We've been ending our shows with your responses to topics from previous weeks. And this week, you'll hear a listener calling in to talk about her sexual self-inventory. I do like to sometimes uh, throw out a little bit of a, you know, hey, did I ever tell you about that time that I met two Argentine military guys in Buenos Aires and... You know, fun and cute. That's coming up later on. But before that, we've got another Sex Lives two-parter for you. We're talking about the generally terrible state of dating on the show this week. And we're going to approach it from the perspective of both data science and personal experience. Um, joining us in studio is New York Magazine's Drake Bear, who recently wrote a piece for Science of Us called Finally a Scientific Explanation for Why New York Dating is So Terrible. Drake, welcome. Thank you for having me. And we're also going to be joined by comedian Mike Bledger, who has a podcast of his own called Malignant Brain Humor and is going to tell us a bunch about his own dating life in the city. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Maureen, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you loved about Drake's piece? Yeah, well, you so often hear people sort of bitching and moaning about new, dating in New York is the absolute worst in America. And I'm always very skeptical of this. Um, I think some of it is just my pure, like, willful ignorance to things that I don't like to believe are true. And that's why I'm always like, no, New York dating isn't that bad. We're well, just Well, it's also been, it's been good for you, right? You've been pretty happy <laughs> with it. Yeah. And my love life rocks. <laughs> but um, no, so I was really fascinated to finally see some sort of data-driven research on in what circumstances do dating, quote-unquote, markets start sucking for the participants or not, and under what circumstances, which Blake sort of broke down in his um, Science of Us article. Drake. Dr- I'm so sorry, Drake. <laughs> like the rapper. Yes. That Drake bro- There's just a lot of Bs and Ds in this room right now. There are now. really a lot of men in this room. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Some really overwhelmed. Too many. <laughs> um, I don't think we've had this male-to-female ratio ever. I don't think we've ever gotten above even. I come as an welcome. agent of the patriarchy. Thank you. Well, welcome, patriarchy. Tell me why dating is so terrible for me in New York City, <laughs> patriarch. Um, well, this study is fascinating on a few different levels. Uh, first, uh, they, the researchers, Daniel Conroy Beam and David Buss, took two different samples and got people's uh, preferences, essentially, and assigned mate values. Uh, for themselves and for their partners, which has various methodological hangups. Um, but then they took those preferences and put them onto virtual agents, roughly analogous to how uh, like a an NFL video game like Madden <laughs> uh, will take NFL players from real from real life and assign them ratings. They did that with people and their mate ability. So then practically speaking, was it like – attractiveness was it like did they get ratings for like humor and like adventurous like what were the metrics they were using? Uh, they used a bunch of different metrics uh, from uh, appearance to also uh, kindness and um, intelligence etc so it's like you go through and you're like how kind is this person rating how hot is this person rating somehow those things get weighted yeah. together and then you get your like all total mate score yeah. you yeah. guys got to see the pics on my fantasy sex team <laughs> it's amazing. This is already getting so duded up. All right, let's yeah. keep going, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so what they what they found was, first of all, in the attraction literature, uh, a lot of it is 
the research is done with speed dating. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the findings from the, the speed dating research is that no matter what people's stated preferences are, who they really want to date is the most attractive person. On both, both like men want to date the hottest woman, women want to date the hottest man, no matter how much they're like, I care about his values. Yes, no matter. So in, in the context of speed dating, God, it's so depressing. S- stated preference uh, doesn't reflect like an in, alibi, in, in actual mate choice. So one of the ways that this study pushes attraction research forward is by looking outside of the speed dating context because uh-huh. speed, speed dating has these methodological restrictions. Um, obviously, there are there are issues with are you going to rate yourself as not being very mateable? Uh, in one sample, it was newlyweds in a single Midwestern county. In another sample, it was internet uh, sought long-term partners um, so if you're with someone for an av- for 10 years, you're probably not going to say that they're not worth being with mm-hmm. uh, unless you really don't like them. <laughs> um, so there are like met- methodological um, limits. But nonetheless, uh, what, what's fascinating is that they found that stated preferences actually did sync up with the mate choices people made. And then another finding in here is uh, something that's probably going to sound uh, – uh, resonant to people who have dated at all in New York, which is this thing called associative sorting, uh, which means that the people with the highest mate value, uh, the combination of uh, physical and uh, uh, interpersonal assets, essentially have the pick of the litter. And that replicated or that was found replicates uh, kind of a, a loaded term, but that was found both in these uh, IRL examples as well as in the simulations. So in these data sets, like all the most attractive people ended up with the most attractive people, the medium attractive people ended up with the medium yeah. attractive people, and the, so on down the line. Yeah. I think that that redeems a lot of different um, kind of facets of uh, folk wisdom or folk complaints about dating. Like the good ones are all taken. Um, there's always someone better. There's a kind of contextual uh, hopelessness that I think it's batted around when people talk about dating in the city. But isn't that assuming it's only hopeless if you're thinking I need to be with the like 100% 10 out of a 10 person, right? Like if you're saying that you feel hopeless about dating, what you're actually saying is I would like to date out of my league is what you're telling us right now. Yeah, so th- there is, there's like it's like a, 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 stri- and that, like, a stratification. You would not be satisfied dating someone who is who is exactly the same as you. you. Yeah. yeah, you just need anybody who complains about dating then in whatever pool they're in actually just needs to have lower self esteem. <laughs> or, or or so the, the, another uh, or higher self esteem like themselves more. Oh, true. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Self compassion. <laughs> um, so one of the, there's there's in the in the in the copy of the study there's actually a bunch of fantastic. Uh, Kind of turns of phrase as far uh-huh. as academic uh, academic ease goes, um, and let me uh, read this directly to you. The paper offers hard truths about mate selection, like that people must select their mates from among restricted pools where ideal partners may not exist, and that each potential mate represents a collection of traits, and so fulfilling one preference often requires relaxing another. 
That means your choices are limited. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a wisely. truism that if you're going to be like super duper picky about like I can only date someone who looks like a model, then you can't be super fucking picky about other traits, right? Because yeah. there's only a few people that look like that. But I think that interestingly, we're living in a time where we see presented to us more incredibly gorgeous people all the time. So I think we have, in some sense, inflated expectations as compared that's to true. previous eras. I know. Is and it... you're like, where are all the Instagram hotties? Fuck, they would all be here right now. They're having sex with other Instagram hotties. Exactly. What I was shocked by with this, though, is how it seemed like this sort of associative mating was stable in some way, as though there was actually some, like, population-wide accepted, this is the 10 out of a 10, this is the 9 out of a 10, mm-hmm. this is... And, like, that was what was so disturbing mm-hmm. and fascinating to me about this. The consensus. Yeah, that how... I mean, how real is that consensus? Like, who made those mate, you know, ratings, is right? Is that just, like, what so- these two professors, like, created this <laughs> framework? Or, like, is there population-wide people have pretty much agreed that, like, these are the best people, these are the medium, these are the... I mean, that's just, like, so profoundly upends what I would like to believe about love and romance and human relations. I think it's, I think it's just psych professor hot or not. No, I, I mean, so that's that that that's outside of the bounds of this study. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's like a really fascinating sociological question, because if there is consensus uh, reflected in the data, then that means that people are drawing from very similar uh, antecedents. So they have the same values in terms of deciding who yeah. they think is the best. Yeah. I also I wonder personally whether we're also when we think of someone as being hot, whether we're responding to consensus, like oh, whether, absolutely. you know, like some in, in a vacuum, you might not think someone is attractive, but you just know that, you know, they're imbued with some. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can't you can't take uh, the degree to which somebody is attractive in some sense out of the way that you're evaluating them within a social context. Yeah. It's called the halo effect. I actually had a follow up correspondence with one of the researchers and I, and I, I asked him, how, how would you extrapolate this uh, to to dwellers of large urban areas such as New York? And he said, mm-hmm. well, the thing is uh, kind of to David, to your to your point earlier, is that. When you when you're in a larger population, the chance of finding someone who fits you better is legitimately higher. Uh, that person, th- those people exist, but being able to sort, being able to find them, yeah. uh, and, and now this is where it starts getting romantic, um, uh, <laughs> is going to be more of a challenge because it's it's a larger pool. But it's, I mean, personally, I've, we've talked about this before, but I, I feel like. It's not just that New York is a big city. It's also that there are a lot of really attractive people here. Like, mm-hmm. you know, New York is more attractive than, to me anyway, than um, like Houston. Well, no, I mean, it's a mo- it's a modeling capital. It's a marketing capital. You have people who are, it's an art capital. There are people drawn to New York uh, who are literally being paid to be attractive. I mean, I think the only other American cities that compare are LA and Miami. Like, if you're listening Aww. to this in Minneapolis and you're the hottest person in Minneapolis, come to New York. You will be welcome here. I already did it. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so, I mean, this is slam dunk. Uh, Are you kidding me? This is uh, this is not re- th- this isn't empirically grounded, but um, the word that psychology uses for when something is good is that it's adaptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, if you are in an environment uh, where people are wearing less clothes all the time, then it's adaptive to look better with fewer clothes on. Uh, New York, I think, is actually a bit of an outlier in that regard um, because this is a seasonal city. Mm-hmm. So there's another thing, though, Drake, in your article that I found very moving, which is when you point out that when you're sort of falling into this sort of marketplace supply-demand metaphor, that it's easy to sort of perpetuate it. And I think that was really meaningful to me because I always so want to resist that 
supply-demand metaphor on dating because, like, don't we have commerce applying to, like, too many things in our life? Why do we yeah. want to apply it to love yeah. as well? And, and yet uh, it's so – it always happens. Yeah, Capitalism and, and, ruins everything. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a, a socialist in some ways. Um, and, yeah, I think metaphors really, really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually just had a piece go up uh, yesterday, today or yesterday, about how when crime is described to people as a beast versus as a virus, their intuitions for how to treat it are radically different. Uh, so if you, you so if you describe crime as a beast for people, they tend towards enforcement. Like let's get more cops on the streets, let's build bigger jails, etc. But if you term it uh, as a disease, then people's intuitions are well, okay, let's try and do better healthcare and uh, fix the economy for a neighborhood. Um, and lo and behold, um, lots of criminology research suggests that if you treat crime and especially violence as a public health issue, as a disease, then you can actually uh, help. Help. Yeah. But so how does that work with dating? How is that? Well, well, I think so. I think that you see it uh, in there's a there's a weird consumerist romanticism around mm-hmm. dating. Um, and I think it, it, part of it is like the 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 mythology that our culture supplies us about dating uh, from romantic comedies and from uh, TV shows, etc. is that the denouement is the happily ever after. Uh, but in real life, the happily ever after, like what happens after the girl gets the guy or the guy gets the girl is your life. We're told that it's about securing this person. That it's like in, an acquisition process. Yeah, that it's an a acquisition. Chase. Yeah, yeah, it's a chase. Exactly. A hunt, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is really materializing and, is, and is, it's objectifying in a different way than just the sense of looking at someone for just who they are physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The 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 uh, the hunt, the chase metaphor, the sports metaphor. You know, if if, if dating is you know you're on bases, well, pff, there's a winner and a loser in a sports game. You're scoring points. You're scoring them on somebody else. There's a losing team. I mean, I'm also curious about how that sort of sense of status anxiety, if that affects, you know, if you know that they say like when somebody has sort of this idea of scarcity, then all of a sudden they want to hoard something or like how that <laughs> feeling of scarcity affects the way people date. Because I really think it does that. I think when you read too much, say, like of the sort of like he's just not that into you, like scarcity dynamics of romance, I think that that does actually make like women go crazy. And then they're like, oh, my God, I need to nail down a man right now. Or I mean, or vice versa, I suppose, although fewer people sort of bring that scarcity dynamic to, I think, hetero men in dating situations. But I think it does actually warp the way you approach how you date and who you date. You know, sometimes people will say, like, if you remind somebody of this factor or that factor of their identity before they take a test, they'll perform better or worse. Like, does that sort of, I don't know, priming affect the way people make their mating decisions when they're dating? Yes. But so I think we like we it's really useful to define our terms, right? Because in the in the speed dating case mate selection is i'm going to go on another date with this person right uh in the real life case if you are uh, a traditional monogamist or maybe a non-traditional monogamist i don't know the terms are so hard now um (laughs) but in the in real life case you're looking at uh well mate selection is just continuing to date someone as opposed to deciding to go on a first date with them yeah uh and that can 
that can last, again, for, for years or decades. I think that all of these uh, priming effects, uh, the metaphors, I mean, my intuition is that that stuff would break down over time mm-hmm. um, because you're left with the raw, uh, non-conceptual reality yeah. of this other person. There's also uh, research out there that indicates that we demand more from marriages today than we ever have before Mm -hmm. uh, because we're looking for self-fulfillment or individuation or any number of very uh, positive psychological uh, uh, terms through a relationship whereas before we were it was a matter of uh, financial security uh, of creating offspring um but now there's much more of like this um the levels of self-realization yeah they're far more amorphous too you can't measure them uh objectively in the same way and and that means it's much harder to like either show to yourself or to anyone else i did it i've achieved goodness before you could be like kids (laughs) yeah yeah we did it (laughs) can i tell you how i really feel Uh, Uh, yes we're in um so i love uh union psychology and there's this the, uh, Carl Carl Gustav Jung. Uh, ah, yes. I was like, Ugh, you're such a mother figure. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, that's funny. Um, <laughs> and there's this great analyst, uh, James Hollis, who has a book called The Eden Project, The Search for the Magical Other. And what he tries to take down in this book, which I think everyone should read as part of uh, being alive, um, is that your partner in some way redeems you. That like we in our culture, we've sort of taken the the search for the magical other him or Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright. We've taken the search of the magical other to have a, have a, an almost uh, uh, theistic quality like they're going to save you. Like there's all sorts of like pop punk songs about like come save me. That's like every dashboard can be confessional song. Uh, what Hollis says is that like you have to. The only person who's going to do like your individuation, who's going to take care of your uh, your needs and like your self-fulfillment is you. Ultimately, it's your responsibility. Um, And you also need to respect that this other person is like the other with a capital O is is different from you and will remain mysterious. Also, this is the moral of Shel Silverstein's The Missing Piece, right? It's like you're looking for somebody else to complete you, and it's like, oh, wait, maybe you're okay with having a, a crack in you, and uh, you should, like... Maybe I don't want that peaceful. <laughs> maybe I just want to have one missing piece. Again, this euphemism has gotten so specific. You look like a perfect fit Mike, should we talk about your hunt for your missing yes. piece and uh, all the weird places that it's taken you? Oh, my gosh. Uh, sure. Let's talk about all the, the weirdness. And uh, we can't talk about all the weirdness because that would take uh, all of the time. Um, but but you're here to talk about this kind of hyper 
dating world. You have like a term for it. <laughs> uh, I I did not create the term. Uh, it's turbo dating. I was uh, given the term by somebody who with whom I was turbo dating, who was also turbo dating other people. Uh, in many ways, it spread like a linguistic sexual disease. Which- <laughs> I was about to say this is how this is how. <laughs> Viruses get out. (laughs) (laughs) Dating is a virus, a good metaphor, uh, indeed. Uh, I was just dating all the time a lot. What do you you mean by all the time a lot? Like I was – I had like, you know, five to seven at any point like sort of regular partners – uh, who, you know, all knew about each other or, like, knew vaguely enough really? about it. Really? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. How much? Really? They really knew all of, like, no, I they, they, they capable of memorizing, like, five people's names. I'm, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying that they knew, like, the okay. other person. So I'm just saying dating. everybody was non-monogamous and aware that, you know, there were other people. And But I would, like, have regular partners at, you know, for a period of time. And then, you know, yeah. you, you sort of change how many time. How many dates do you go on each week during turbo dating? Um... It could have been over seven uh, in a week. You might go on two a day. I mean, not like that wouldn't be typical, but uh, I, like I would say it was typically between three and five. All right. Um, How long did the turbo dating phase last? I don't know. It's all a. It's all a. This is, this is what I call a, a trampage. I was. Back. It was a. Blur. I'm trying to start tramp to make tramp, I'm trying really hard to make trampage happen, and it's not happened yet. But guys, feel free to They're go for to it. Trampage. I like that. I, I, I like, like it. it. I'm working um, on it. It's like speed dating, but with your whole life, which is not productive. It's not a productive way to live. <laughs> like this was ha- bad for bad for every part about bad for your income, bad for keeping your apartment clean. Yeah, uh, I'm no, speaking I, from my experience at least. <laughs> good, good for keeping my apartment clean. Uh, decent for my income. You have to, you know, you get creative about dates uh, over time. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, like you you go places that are walkable, that are fun, that are exciting, that are the park. You know. <laughs> I've um, never gone on a date in a park. Um, it is true that I think turbo dating is a phenomenon that exists particularly in places like New York. Mm-hmm. Moments like now when you have 8,000 different ways of meeting people. Right? Yeah. You can meet people through the internet. You can meet them in person. That It's like this crazy – I mean if you were go just to try to walk out in public and meet people, you don't have the guarantee that every single person is single and ready, yeah. which is what you, they are on your you phone. You call it inbound marketing. What does that mean? I've never heard that term. Well, well like for in business, mm. uh, inbound marketing. That's why I've never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I used, uh, I used to be a, like a straight ahead business journalist. Uh, inbound marketing means that you're giving yourself a lot of different avenues for customers to approach you. Yes, that's what I was doing. I was giving myself a lot of different avenues for customers to approach me. And what was the goal? And we're back to the commerce metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> what was your um, goal? What, were you, what was the product you were trying to buy? The, yeah. No, 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 no. I, they were the customers. I was uh, selling, obviously. Um, you know, fun. I was trying to sell fun. <laughs> Uh, it's an interesting thing, like especially like being a sort of a, a stand-up comic. You get really used to introducing yourself to a room. You get really used to like the kind of the sam- similar kinds of dynamics that occur when you are flirting with somebody, especially early on. Um, in many ways, I was like, oh, this, I can write this off of my tax expenses as a comedy like related expense. You I often basically. wonder if I can write my dates off as income-related. <laughs> you must be able to. I don't know. I need a better tax accountant, I think. Hmm. <laughs> but you weren't just in it for the comedy practice, right? No, no. Lots and lots of sex. So yeah. much sex. Um, I mean, like, r- right now I'm in, like, a, a you know, a semi-monogamous, you know, relationship. I'm, I, like, I, I really love the person that I'm with. 
um, and and the, uh, there's a lot less sex, but it's a lot of fun and joyous. I'm not, you know, there were many things that were really good about that lifestyle and that way of being, and there are also really good things about uh, this way of being, but it was very exhausting on my penis, you know, yes. Uh, <laughs> I have a question, though. That transition from turbo dating to not turbo dating, I sort of have this theory that it's sort of some, like, physics dilemma of, you know, that the, like, the object in motion stays in motion. That As kind of you thing. approach maximum velocity, <laughs> the yeah, will begin to melt off your body. <laughs> no, it's that um, the question for me is when you're used to being single and dating a lot, like it's it's I mean, it's not even that there is one problem of that dilemma of tr- wanting to trade up and probably maybe there's something better on the corner. But I think the problem isn't so much looking for something better as just your pattern of life is just the dating life that it's a form of entertainment at some point. Absolutely. And like dating becomes I'm like, I don't watch any TV shows. I date, you know, <laughs> and readjusting to a life that isn't like you aren't getting so much of your sort of social stimulation from dating is sort of like a confusing, difficult process. I always find it's um, a it's a really interesting thing. I, it, it's very tricky the way that uh, things layer on top of each other. So like the people w- who wanted to go on dates and who wanted to sleep with me like they were they were in many cases really talented really interesting people really uh, artistic people um but i will say that like the the partner with whom i am with now is able to come with me on this sort of emotional dark moments of my life but also be like there to hear the laughter and like you know i I make her laugh a lot and that's a lot of fun and you know and she makes me laugh like it's it's really cool, but she also actually is able to access like she gets me on a on a much more uh, rich psychological level. What I found as somebody who's like been mostly single for years um, is that I realized at some point that I was like it's gotten harder. Like every progressive year, it becomes harder to actually be with one person hmm. because I've built a life where I get all of that sort of like those sort of like deeper connections don't come from my romantic partners because those people kind of rotate. Come and go, yeah. They come Absolutely. from like my friends, whereas I'm used to getting 100% of the sort of the novelty or the like new characters, new interest. I mean, probably I should just watch more television and then I can <laughs> this time. But it's like that's sort of where it's like I get sort of curiosity satiation from dating and then all That's of where the novelty of, lies. Exactly. And all yeah. the sort of support systems come from non-romantic people. And it's like this complete readjustment in order to sort of go back to that that I almost feel like I can't now like there was a time in my life when I did have that type of relationship and then I'm like I haven't done it for so long that I don't know how to go back plus like it probably feels uncomfortable to imagine invading your life with one person like so much (laughs) giving so much of your life over to one person well it's also like I don't want to disrupt the balance of my life now that like I have my life built in a certain way where you know, I don't have one stable person, but I have a whole set of friends. And then all of a sudden, if I have a boyfriend, uh, then you I'm have like, a stable I don't... of people. Yeah, then I'm like, well, now I don't have time for the other people and things in my life. Yeah. What What I really do like, though, about the way that you're talking about it is that you are thinking about it in terms of uh, this sort of abstract concept of different desires, different needs that you have, uh, and getting them met. And and. Uh, you know, you have your emotional needs uh, and your need for sort of like intimacy, physical intimacy, psychological intimacy, you know, different things. And you meet them in with different structures. I think it's cool that, uh, you know, 
maybe you have one person who you know meets uh, all of these specific set of needs, and then friends who meet you know more uh, shallow needs, or maybe you have uh, you know dating people who meet some of the shallow you know quote unquote shallower needs, and uh, friends that meet the deeper intimate needs, you know. Also, to bring it back to what we were talking about with Drake earlier, it's you know it sort of eliminates the whole problem of associative mating. If if people are not focusing on acquiring a single mate that's going to match them perfectly, then they're liberated to like have many more yeah. different interesting experiences. Yeah, maybe it's a yeah. good thing. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, uh, uh, relationship therapists and people who 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 study social bonds. Uh, another takeaway that I've gotten is that the more robust friendships that you have, the less you you need from your primary relationship. So I don't have to be as heavily associative with that person. You don't, you don't have to you, depend. You, it, yeah. it, you 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 end up. I think in a healthy way, you end up depending less on them. You yeah. you, you you will. This is perhaps both the general and the local you, um, but you end <laughs> yeah. up spreading uh, your needs among more people. This is how I got into mono- uh, non-monogamy to begin with, actually, is because I found that when I was dating, this is when I was much younger, I found that when I was dating just one person, I would like put way too much pressure on that relationship to work out because I was like, oh, this is the access, this is like my access to physical intimacy, which is connected to my idea of emotional intimacy and like I need this thing to work out and it became less about the individual person and more about like needs that I had and I found that when I dated more uh, you know when I was dating not just one person at a time I wasn't putting pressure on that person because of just my needs but I was able to just be there and be present and like interact with that person uh, on whatever level you two are connected yeah so dating is only impossible if you're trying to get into a single monogamous relationship right (laughs) no no, otherwise it's yeah no I just think that it takes like it uh when you're trying to only when you're trying to fix everything in, with one solution then i think it puts a lot of pressure to make that solution right yeah well i think there there well, it's also when you're looking at a person as being the solution to a problem Abs- absolutely that's part of what i'm saying i'm, I'm yeah. it, it's not it's not the question of like one person or many people it's the question of the ways that we have thought about uh what relationships do for us over time, I think. And I think there's, there's also like a bowling alone element to this. <laughs> That's uh, what I call jerking off too. <laughs> oh, so like uh, in in places where, where community isn't really available, if it's not possible to have uh, a cohort of friends, to have an urban tribe mm-hmm. where you live, then I, I think that's where you get into these kind of uh, – Raymond Carver, like suburban dys, uh, dystopian situations, hmm. because you're isolated. You, there's just you and your partner, and maybe the kids. But if you feel alone within that family system, then that's like devastating solitude. Yeah, and um, then you have nowhere to go. But Those can it, be very romantic relationships too, though. That, that's true, but but the, it, it's almost as though the uh, the what I'm trying to say is that if yeah. you don't have a robust friend group. Um, then you will very much uh, be relying more on your partner uh, for everything, uh, which is potentially kind of unfair to them. And when it works out, that's amazing. But in so many cases, it doesn't. And it's unfair in some sense to put all that pressure on one person because the pressure is not uh, originating sort of organically from 
you know, it's not like, oh, I just met somebody and they satisfy all my needs. It's I have all these needs and nobody is satisfying them. It's got to be you. So then how did you end up with one person after the turbo dating phase? Well, to be fair, I, dating, I, like... I said semi-monogamous. But <laughs> um, I found that um, this was somebody with whom I wanted to um, – spend more time with and and she uh you know she asked me to like reduce the number of people with whom i was sleeping yeah um and um and i found that i prioritized the relationship and uh what what uh she gave me and what i gave her uh you know to to the point where where that made sense now i didn't want to be like i don't think uh strict monogamy is necessarily a, a good thing it's i don't know that it's the right thing for me you know and she had been she had been non-monogamous before she met me too it's it wasn't just me trying to twist her into my sick world of depravity um it really becomes it comes down to like uh you know what like i'm not saying that love is a finite emotion whatever i'm not gonna get into that argument with burners but uh but i will say like time is finite right you have so yeah. much time that you can spend with people and if you spend it with too many other people then you can't build the relationship that you have so that's true the moment that you really notice it is whenever you're single and you get really really sick and you're like who will help me puke <laughs> someone take care say, of me <laughs> once you reach the rubicon where you have like one or two friends who can help you when you puke then you're like what the fuck do i need a boyfriend for i've got task rabbit and i've got someone to help me when i puke what else do i need ted alexandro is an amazing comedian the city has an incredible joke that's like uh you know being he's single and he's 40 uh you know or something like that and he's like uh being single and and 40 is is sort of a it's a balance between the um 10 seconds uh feeling sad uh as you go to sleep and the entire rest of the day when you're very happy and be able to do whatever you want all day. I never feel sad when I'm falling asleep. Ted, I'm so sorry. I only fear sad if there's a man in the bed snoring and then I can't sleep. Ted, I'm so sorry I fucked up your joke. (laughs) It's like not fair. I did a terrible version of it. Well, thanks to Drake Barron, Mike Bledger for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Woo-hoo. I didn't know I should talk. <laughs> and before we go, um, let's take a listen to this week's voicemail. A couple of weeks ago, we did an episode with Mandy Stadmiller about taking a sexual self-inventory, as well as about all the emotions and associations we have with our numbers, the number of sexual partners we've had. Here's a response from a caller who is very proud of her number. Hi there. Um, I'm calling in response to the question of what's your number? Um, My number, I think, is relatively high, um, given my geographic location and the type of people that I hang out with. Um, So I think the root of your question was, are you proud of your number or does that make you feel ashamed? And ultimately, I'm actually really proud of my number because it includes a lot of really interesting experiences, um, including multiple devil's three ways, um, a lot of men with uh, different ethnicities and a lot of uh, cool accents. Um, but at the same time, when I'm in a relationship, I really keep that number really close to my chest. And the reason for that is because um, I'm actually a really monogamous person, and my overall history really uh, represents that much more clearly because I've had some bouts of sluttiness, but I also have spent uh, a lot of years investing in serious relationships. So when I'm uh, dating someone, I never, ever reveal my, my number, but I do like to sometimes uh, – throw out a little bit of a, you know, hey, did I ever tell you about that time that I met two Argentine military guys in Buenos Aires and, you know, fun ensued. 
So ultimately, um, I'm a little bit conflicted about my number, but ultimately very positive and uh, proud of the experiences that I've had. But no, uh, you don't get to know what it is. I would prefer to hear, I would say, like, if somebody is like, tell me your number. And instead they told me a steamy story about two Argentine military guys. Like, I think that the, the story is definitely what wins out anyways. I'd rather know that than the number. Yeah. Maybe I, both. Yeah, maybe I'll both. <laughs> I was keeping a list at some point because I thought it was respectful, and then I felt respectful? like it was the opposite. Like, yeah, the yeah, opposite. Like, respectful of like to yourself. No, to... like respectful to like, I, like I want. I was keeping a, a list because I was like, okay, I should remember all the people that I've slept oh. with. That's I think that's respectful of them. And but then it seemed weird to put somebody who I like slept with once uh, on the same list at all with somebody who I was like, you know, dated for a long time. Uh, it didn't seem like it, it didn't really make any sense. No, yeah, I think that that. That is an interesting point that she made that like there's this sort of chasm between just the sheer number of like genitals you've touched and then the number of people whose hearts you've touched. That got really dorky. With your genitals. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And that's it for Sex Lives. (laughs) A reminder, you can always reach our voicemail box at 646-494-3590. So this week, call us and tell us about um, nightmare dating stories in big cities full of very attractive people. Do you feel compelled to trade up? In what circumstances do you find yourself with more or less of a wandering eye? Sex Lives is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you next week. And thanks for listening. 